you're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, April 30th, 2023 edition of Labor Express. Happy May Day Eve or May Day itself to all of our listeners, depending on when you're listening to this episode. And I apologize to listeners for the month-long unplanned hiatus from new episodes A variety of life events intervened over the past several weeks, preventing me from bringing you new episodes. I do apologize for that, but I'm back now just in time for International Workers' Day. On tonight's episode of Labor Express, we mark the election in Chicago of probably the most progressive mayor in the country and nearly certainly the most rooted in the labor movement. I will air an edited version of Brandon Johnson's election victory speech later in the episode. In the latter half of tonight's episode, we'll hear from teachers and parents of students at Hope Learning Academy Chicago, which chose to close its doors rather than accept the outcome of a union election by its staff. We'll also hear via our friends from More Perfect Union about the cancerous growth of efforts to undermine child labor laws and how these efforts originate with the very corporations that hope to exploit these children. But first, we have an international news update from our friends at Radio Labor in Canada. In the following episode of Solidarity News, host Mark Belanger talks with a representative of Uni Global Union about the improvements in workplace protections since the Rana Plaza factory collapse, which killed 1,200 women garment workers and left 2,500 more injured. The 10th anniversary of one of the greatest workplace tragedies in the 21st century passed this past April 24th, and there has been positive improvements in workplace safety due to international union organizing over the past decade, but there's still much more organizing to do globally. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Tuesday, April 25th, 2023. I'm Mark Polanche. Ten years ago, An illegally built garment factory in the Rana Plaza near Dhaka, Bangladesh, collapsed, killing 1,200 mainly young women and injuring another 2,500. Immediately after the disaster, two global unions, Industrial and Uni, forced the retail and brand companies operating in Bangladesh to sign an international health and safety accord. The accord has been a major success in saving lives and making factories safer. Alki Bosager is the Deputy General Secretary of Uni Global Union. Uni is the worldwide body which represents 20 million union members working in the skills and services sectors of 150 countries. In a recent interview, Ms. Bosinger was asked if another disaster like Rana Plaza could happen again. Unfortunately, I would say we are not in a situation yet in the world where a Rana Plaza could not happen somewhere else uh, in, in, in any other country. I believe in Bangladesh, we have made a lot of progress. Certainly the factories that have been covered by the accord are much, much safer than they were 10 years ago. But we are only at the beginning of our program, which we're planning to expand into other countries. And I would say the risk of an industrial disaster of the dimensions of Rana Plaza happening in another country is not unlikely. Following the Rana Plaza collapse in 2013, we signed an agreement with the leading global retailers and brands. We have signed a series of additional agreements following that. More than 200 companies worldwide signed on to this agreement, and they made a commitment to, first of all, require the factories that they work with to make the building safe. We have an agreed standard that is agreed with the government of Bangladesh and through engineer-conducted audits by the program that we have established. 
The factories have been required to make changes so that workers are safe when they go into the factory. But in addition to that, and that's a very important part of our program, we have trained both workers and managers in the factories to set up health and safety committee and to be alert to understand what requirements there are for a factory to be safe. And a very important element that we have included into this agreement is also that workers can actually make a complaint about the issues that they're finding in their factories. We have an independent complaint mechanism, which is recognized as the most credible credible complaints mechanism out there in the world. The factories can be reported when workers find that there are safety issues and those reports will be investigated by the, the team that we have on the ground in Bangladesh and then those issues will be taken up. What we have done with the International Accord is to uh, look at a number of countries where the brands that have signed this agreement are sourcing from. And we have identified Pakistan as the next country that we're expanding the accord to. We're in discussions with the government of Pakistan, very discussions with the brands, with the industry in Pakistan about setting up a program there, which will take the lessons learned from Bangladesh, include the same elements which are inspections of remediation, safety training programs for managers and workers and the complaints mechanism. And we will uh, develop those into a specific program for Pakistan. And that's the first country we're going to. We have, of course, the ambition to expand our program into other countries as well. But Pakistan is the next one where we're going to start operations. One thing that unfortunately has not improved as much as the safety in the in the factories is the wages and salaries that are being paid to the factory workers. And a lot of that has to do with the prices that our brands are prepared to pay for the products that are being made in those factories. That's a problem that we're seeing. It's not part of the program that we have, but it's certainly an element that needs to be developed. Um, consumers can make their contribution by, first of all, checking where their products that they buy are being made to me. First of all, make sure that they come from a safe factory that is covered by the accord but also by requiring or asking of the brands that they're buying their products for asking them to pay fair wages to the workers that are making their products. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanche. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. Thank you to Solidarity News, produced by Radio Labor in Canada, for allowing us to broadcast their segments regularly here on Labor Express. For more on Radio Labor, see their website at radiolabor.net. Well, working-class Chicagoans and labor movement advocates certainly had something to celebrate following the runoff elections for mayor in early April. One of our own, Brandon Johnson, against all odds, was elected the next mayor of the world capital of the labor movement. It was a stunning victory that I think few could have predicted several months ago, but which solidifies the progressive pro-worker politics that began with victories in the last municipal elections back in 2019. Not only was a former union organizer and Chicago Teachers Union-endorsed candidate elected mayor, but the Chicago Socialist Alderperson Caucus maintained its six elected members, this despite expelling Alderman Andre Vasquez 
of the 40th Ward from its membership back in 2020 for his vote on Lightfoot's uh, budget at the time. So you could say there are now six socialist aldermen, maybe a seventh adjacent socialist alderman in the council. The six official members of the Socialist Caucus are Angela Clay of the 46th Ward, who is a new member of the caucus, Daniel Laspada of the 1st Ward, who's returning, Carlos Ramirez Rosa of the 35th Ward, who's also returning, Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez of the 33rd Ward, another returning member of the caucus, Byron Sigcho Lopez, uh, our man in uh, the 25th Ward in Pilsen and the great community of Pilsen returning as well, and Jeanette Taylor of the 20th Ward, also a returning member of the caucus. In his victory speech, it was evident the central role that the labor movement played in Johnson's victory. As you will hear after he thanks his family, who, by the way, includes his wife, Stacey Johnson, a former Labor Express radio contributor. I promise we'll have more on that on future episodes for you. But after thanking his family, Johnson thanked a litany of uh, unions who not only endorsed him but worked hard for his victory. It's also no surprise that, as you will hear in this segment, Johnson is introduced by none other than CTU President Stacey Davis Gates. Johnson's victory is a clear indication of the Chicago Teachers Union as the ascendant political power in the city of Chicago. Our brother, teacher, organizer, warrior, Karen Lewis's protege, our brother, commissioner, and now mayor of Chicago, Brandon Johnson. Thank you. Thank you. Chicago, how the heck are you? <laughs> you know, they said this would never happen. So, you know, if they didn't know, now they know. <laughs> There's so many people who are responsible for this moment, and I like to thank and take a second to thank those individuals you know but first I want to make sure that I say this the first thing that I want to say is to the Chicagoans who did not vote for me here's what I want you to know here's what I want you to know that I care about you I value you and I want to hear from you. I want to work with you. And I'll be the mayor for you too. Yes! Because this campaign has always been about building a better, stronger, safer Chicago for all the people of Chicago. And when I say all the people, I mean all the people especially folks, especially folks who have ever been on a payment plan. Oh. Oh. So from Lincoln Park to Humble Park, from Jefferson Park to Garfield Park, there are so many people that made this possible. Of course, I want to thank, thank my God. Aren't you glad, Chicago, that we serve a God who was at the beginning and the end? Hallelujah. And of course, to my family, 
My wife, Stacy. I love you, baby. <laughs> to my three children, Owen, Ethan, and Brayden. And of course, to HCII, SCIU, SCIU 73, to the CTU, to the CCTU, to the IFT, the AFT, the UWF, because make no mistake about it, Chicago is a union town. Chicago, tonight is just the beginning. With our voices and our votes, we have ushered in a new chapter in the history of our city. The truth is, the people have always worked for Chicago. Whether you wake up early to open the doors of your businesses, or teach middle school, or wear a badge to protect our streets, or nurse patients in need, or provide child care services, you have always worked for this city. And now Chicago will begin to work for its people, all the people. Because tonight is a gateway to a new future for our city, a city where you can thrive regardless of who you love or how much money you have in your bank account. A city that's truly safer for everyone by investing in what actually works to prevent crime. And that means youth employment, mental health centers, ensuring that law enforcement has the resources to solve and prevent crime. A city that actually respects the workers who keep it running and supports the entrepreneurs that keep it growing. A city where trains run on time and where no one is too poor to live in one of the richest cities, in one of the wealthiest nations at the richest time in the history of the world. A city where public schools have the resources to meet the needs of every child across this city. Now, in other words, tonight is the beginning of a Chicago that truly invests in all of its people. Now, you've heard me say this before, Chicago. Well, you're going to keep hearing it because the heart of this movement has always been about investing in people. I'll be honest, this is personal for me. Investing in people is at the heart of this campaign because I've seen what disinvestment looks like. I grew up in a household with ten of us, and if it weren't for Andrew and Gene, we wouldn't be here today. A home with one bathroom and four sisters. Let me tell you, you learn to negotiate early in life. Always ally with your sisters. But it wasn't always easy for us. My father worked two and three jobs just to make sure life was a little better for us. But I know what it's like to come home 
and your water is not on. I know what it's like to come home and thank God for a long orange extinction cord from your window to your neighbor's window. But I also know what it's like to teach in Cabrini Green, where my students can see one of the wealthiest neighborhoods from their back window, but out of their front windows, bulldozers stared them down preparing to destroy their public housing. I know what I'm talking about when people rely upon public transportation and because it is not reliable, people have lost their jobs because of an unreliable, unsafe transportation system. So when I talk about investing in people, I know what I'm talking about. And when I talk about this city feeling unsafe for so many, it's because as a husband, as a father, as a father raising three children on the west side of Chicago, I've had to shield my children from bullets that fl fly right outside our front door. Or the student who looked me in the face, who said, Mr. Johnson, you shouldn't be teaching here. You should be teaching at a good school. For too many people in the city of Chicago, we recognize value, but for too many of us, we don't believe that we deserve it. That changes under a Johnson administration. Because there's more than enough for everybody in the city of Chicago. Here's the truth. Chicago is a world-class city. It's a city with incredible tapestry of taste, culture, people from all over the world. We are a city with its natural beauty and history like no other place in America. And we are a city that has been the conscious of the nation time and time and time again. Because it is here in the city of Chicago that Harold Washington and Jesus Chuy Garcia and Rudy Lozano built a black and brown coalition to make room for us today. It was here in the city of Chicago that legendary figures like Jane Addams taught us to educate the whole child. Marion Stamps, the mother of Cabrini Green, who fought to organize for housing justice. Here in Chicago, where Margaret Burroughs left her incredible mark on art, the culture, the schools, for the whole nation to witness. It is also here in Chicago that a reverend by the name of Jesse Jackson Sr., whose support and counsel I still rely upon today. Reverend Jesse Jackson told us that we can keep hope alive. It was right here in the city of Chicago that Martin Luther King Jr. organized for justice, dreaming that one day that the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement will come together. Well, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement has finally collided. We are experiencing the very dream of the greatest man who ever walked the earth. In fact, on this very day, 55 years ago, the King stood on a balcony. But you all know, it's very clear that one bullet can't kill a dream. I'm humbled standing in front of you today because of all of you, we've accomplished so much. 
But in the years to come, we have more work to do, Chicago. Because right now in this moment, it's the continuation of those legacies. We will not allow the politics of old to turn us around. We are building a better, stronger, safer Chicago. We're doing it together. It's a multicultural, multi-generational movement that has literally captured the imagination of not just the city of Chicago, but the rest of the world. When Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. came to the city of Chicago, he said he never experienced a place like Chicago. It was brutal, but he understood something. He said, if we can figure it out in Chicago, we can do it anywhere in the world. So Chicago, I'll say it this day. Today, we take big steps towards figuring it out here. So I believe since we are taking steps to figure it out here, let's take this bold progressive movement around these United States of America. Chicago, we can show the country, we can show the world what's possible when we stand on our values as one people. We can reject the false choices that have been presented to us for so long. We don't have to choose between black, brown, white, young, old, poor, rich. We get to do it for everyone, Chicago. We don't have to choose between toughness and compassion, between the care of our neighbors, our neighbors and keeping our people safe. If tonight is proof of anything, it is proof that those old false choices do not serve this city any longer. Here's the truth, looking out for our neighbors, it makes everyone safe. Tonight is proof that by building a multicultural, multi-generational movement, we can bring together everyone. No matter if you live on the north side, the south side, the southeast, the southwest, south or west side. Listen, you all, we have demonstrated that we can change the world, Chicago. We finally will have a city hall, a government that truly belongs to the people of Chicago that Chicago can truly be a safe, world-class city, as remarkable as its potential. We get to make sure that our hopes and our dreams do not have to stop and end today. We get to make sure, you all, that the people of Chicago will finally have what they've been waiting for. The most radical thing we can ever do, you all, is to actually love people. And our administration will do just that. So make no mistake about it. Today, we did not just commemorate the life and the legacy of one of the greatest humanitarians who ever walked the planet Earth. Today, we did not just acknowledge the assassination of a dreamer. Today, the dream is alive. And so today, we celebrate the revival and the resurrection of the city of Chicago. It is time for Chicago to come alive. Come alive, Chicago.
My name is Brandon Johnson, and I can't wait to be sworn in as the next mayor of the greatest city in the world, Chicago. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. We did take a station ID break, and we're going to do it a little early in the program this time. But when we return, we're going to hear about child labor laws under attack in our neighboring state of Iowa and around the nation, and teachers and parents of students at Hope Learning Academy Chicago fighting for the future of their school. So make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. Earlier this month, staff at Hope Learning Academy Chicago on the city's near west side were ready to celebrate a victory with a successful election to join the Chicago Teachers Union Charter Division. Unfortunately, nearly immediately, the charter school operator announced its decision to close the school. Despite claims to the contrary by Hope Institute, the nonprofit owners of the school, the teachers and parents of the students at Hope Academy, uh, which particularly serves special needs and underserved uh, communities of color, they see this suddenly announced closing as retaliation for the union vote. Now they're organizing to try to convince the Chicago Post Schools Board to keep the school open as a regular CPS school, perhaps as an extension of a neighboring elementary school. Several of these teachers and parents made their views known at the last school board hearing on April 26th. The following is audio from that hearing, and it's some of the most impassioned, emotional, and moving testimony that I have heard at one of these hearings. And I've attended quite a few as either a labor journalist or as a former Chicago schools educator myself. It's just continued evidence of Chicago's failed project of school privatization. It's a disturbing disappointment to hear that Hope decided to close the school so late into the school year, especially after CPS enrollment had already concluded leaving families confused and feeling disregarded. We and students deserve more than an impromptu letter given to us on March 27, and a letter to parents days afterwards with nothing orchestrated for parents from leadership itself until there is pushback from the community in the form of emails, calls, and a petition of over 1,000 signatures. It is frustrating for staff, especially those with 10 plus years working here. They travel long distances past other high paying schools because they believed in the children that they serve. Hope is integral to the community with several partnerships, such as the Food Depository, Gads Hill, Tutoring Chicago, Girl Greater Inglewood, a Black Girl Book Club that meets with the author at school, and the UIC Clinic, where students, staff, and the community receive on-health services such as physicals, blood works, vaccinations. A student can be called in class for their appointment and then be returned within the half hour. Chicago children and families deserve so much more than this unfair treatment. It is especially important for Latinx and Black children to be protected from the historic treatment of the city in this modern day. I ask that the board decide to keep the school open with better conditions for all, instead of displacing so much people that feel safe and loved. General ed, diverse learners, their families, teachers, paraprofessionals, related service providers, Number three, you have 30 seconds right and now. our partners, because they deserve so much more. I conclude, thank you. I am Amy Coleman. I've been working at Hope Learning Academy for the last 12 years. I started there when the school was just opening and I stayed there because I believed in the work that we do. I proudly wear my t-shirt today representing our school, not representing its leaders who have felt us, but representing the teachers and the students in the community at Hope that I believe in. Um, Hope Institute Learning for Family and Children should be embarrassed how they conveniently closed after we exercised our right to unionize. They did so closing very dishonest and their disorganized exit from Chicago should show this board that this company should not be allowed to disrupt 
Chicago students again, and I'm asking this board to have a better oversight of contract schools and charter schools. Like our speaker before me said, we have a lot of organizations within our school. One of them most importantly being our health clinic. I have prepared statements from them as well. This is the UIC, Office of Community Engagement and Neighborhood Health Partnerships. They provide comprehensive primary care to children, adults within the community. This school year, they have seen over 417 um, individual patients, averaging about two to three visits daily. A little um, over 50% of their patients are young people from birth to 21. They have worked with HOPE over the last eight or nine years to help get the community to 100% compliance for physicals and vaccines. I'm asking you today, we have a school Speaking inside of our four, school. You have 30 seconds remaining. Please conclude. We have a school inside of our school called Wilma Rudolph, which works with diverse learners that they can uh, absorb us. We also have different schools in our community. I'm asking you today to please hold Hope Learning Academy responsible for the disaster they left here and to do right by our students. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Erica Long, and I've been a paraprofessional for Hope Learning Academy for 10 years, working with both gen ed students, students on the autism spectrum, and with other disabilities. It truly saddens me that our school decided to abruptly close with very little notice or regards to our black and brown students, students with disabilities, our families of hope. Um, we were told that closure was due to low enrollment and, our, and not our decision to unionize, although most of our neighboring schools have a reduction in enrollment as well. We bus and service over 30 zip codes across Chicago and have one of the best K through five inclusion programs. I ask fervently that CPS takes in strong consideration the four-year renewal that we were approved for despite the closure and allow our school to remain open by making the decision to absorb or merge with another neighboring CPS school so that our staff and students aren't displaced and spread across the city of Chicago. Thank you. Where there's no vision, the people perish. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 29. My name is Gloria Austin. I'm a 65-year-old grandmother of four who are in the CPS system. I just have a series of questions. One statement first, that it really bothers me that in our current culture, we have to advocate on behalf of students to ensure that they have a guaranteed quality education that they deserve. But seemingly in this current client, in this, in this current climate, that seems like too much to ask. My questions are, number one, is it too much to ask that our black and brown students receive a quality education in a quality school that has proven to have a measurable excess? success? Is it too much to ask that help students continue to grow personally, academically, educationally, and who are currently thriving? Is it too much to ask that parents and educators and scholars who attend HOPE be guaranteed that they will have a school to go to in the 2023-24 school year. We didn't come here as beggars. We care as educators. We care as parents. We care as students. And we care as community partners. We come together to ensure that our scholars and educators, and above all, our school is not rendered obsolete. And I have an example of books that are being tossed out as obsolete. Are our students gonna be rendered Speaker number eight, you have 30 seconds, please conclude. Okay, are our students gonna be discarded like these CPS library books? I pray that doesn't happen, thank you.
Hello, good morning. My name is Ashley Howard. I am here to speak on behalf of Hope Learning Academy as a partnership with Gads Hill Center for our 21st Century Community Learning Centers. As an educator in Illinois for over 10 years, I've only serviced, I've only serviced scholars from impoverished communities and broken homes. Those conditions do not disappear when scholars enter Hope, but the impact is shifted by the intentional care, academic enrichment, community support, and key stakeholders. As a Title I school, 97% of our families come from low-income households. Black and brown communities historically flooded with lack of access to fresh foods, health care, employment opportunities, and devastated by violence, factors that directly contribute to children's development and academic success. At Hope Learning Academy, families, staff, administration, and community stakeholders are dedicated to reversing these social and economic distresses of the above factors. Partnership with local CBOs such as UIC Medical, Tutoring Chicago, Gads Hill Center, Grow Greater, Grow Greater Inglewood, Chicago Food Depository, Crater Big Brother Chess, Mentoring and Girls Like Us, and Literary Legacies, and more. These families have been provided with an open space to transform generational trauma into intergenerational triumph solely from the, from the power of a community that cares. Our paraprofessionals have shifted interactions with our nonverbal learners. Our educators know our scholars as individuals and provide classroom cultures full of inclusivity, academic excellence, and an emphasis on lifelong learning and continuing education. Our families have an outpour of support. You have 30 seconds remaining. Please conclude. Have an outpour of support from the holistic center, from the holistic learning center that is hope. As a final act, we request that the CPS board considers merging, merging Hope Learning Academy with Wilma Rudolph or a surrounding school entity to keep hope alive. Good morning. Thank you for this opportunity. I stand before you today as a grandparent, but years ago I stood in this very same place as a mother because abruptly in the same similar manner, my children's school was closed. We were told right before school was about to end that the school was closing. Nowhere to go, trying to figure things out for ourselves. Today, my grandson who's already experienced traumatic events and found hope, ironically at the school danged hope, only to be uprooted again and trying to figure out life at seven years old. I am appalled, I am angry, I am frustrated, and I am hurt. And I plead with this board, not beg, to take into consideration how these things affect people in real life. I hurt for my grandson because I see what he goes through every day. Hope has been a gem in his life, gets him. UIC, which I happen to work for, has a school inside the school. All of the needs are being met in that building. Why close it? Why did Suda close? In a community that has a need. They're building beautiful new houses in that area, supposedly for the families there. Speaker which number 16, you have 30 to. seconds. Please, please conclude. Please take into consideration. Real life families. I heard you say you want more black and brown teachers. We have them at Hope. I need hope. My grandson needs hope. Thank you. Good morning. I also have my daughter here. This is Kerrigan. She attends Hope School, and that's why I'm here today.
The teachers, the staff, students, and parents are affected tremendously. Everyone will be affected, the staff, students, and parents. It will affect their job placement and the students' placement with a school that benefits them in many ways. Some students of some some of the students that attend this this school has special needs, and my daughter is one. She was diagnosed with autism, and she's nonverbal. But hope has thus done so much for her. This school has helped so many stu- students tremendously with development, communication, education, and skills in ways no one can understand. Our daughter attends this school, and when she first and when she first started. She was sheltered and closed off. Now, after after her attending for almost a year, she's more open, more attentive, and all around, uh, all around spirited young girl. Hope Academy has not only ha- only helped my child, but many more children. Number fourteen, you have thirty. We need to keep this school for students, teachers, steps, and community because this school is a beacon of hope for all. If you can take in consideration to merge hope. With Wilma Rudolph Elementary, that would be great. And then maybe we keep the school open for children with autism. I not only have her, but I have another daughter with autism, and it's very hard. Thank you. Hello, my name is Matt Praska. I've taught 10 years at Hope, 10 years of service. So much was wrong with how Hope, or with how and why Hope management closed our school. It was unjust, irresponsible, and selfish. Parents never got the respect of a face-to-face discussion about the closure. Hope Management also said we had too many special education students. Unless the school's mission changed, I was unaware. Our school has always been about inclusion and helping diverse learners. With so much wrongdoing, we need something done right. We need CPS to to not allow our school to close. We need CPS to absorb all Hope staff and scholars and remain at our current school. Please do not let the school close. If you do, you are not just letting the school close. That you agree to a contract with, you are allowing the, you are allowing the closing of relationships and, and connections that have been created between teachers, scholars, parents, and the community we serve. All of this is getting shuttered. Money, yeah, I know. It's always a factor, but you know what's more valuable, tangible and important? These scholars, education and future. Research, we know the research. It has shown that school closures are harmful and disruptive to a child's education development. Number 18, you have 30 seconds remaining. Uh Please conclude. We We might be numb to schools closing, but these children, they aren't. They aren't numb to that. Why let this be their new norm? Why are we teaching these children it's okay to close down a place where they feel safe and loved? Why are we teaching them to become callous? Why are we teaching them that greed and selfishness prevails? There's no better place than here and no better time than now to start teaching them to provide compassion, kindness, and a helping hand when it's so desperately needed. 311, okay? That's how many combined years of service that the current 50 employees have provided to the school. You see, these just aren't our co-workers. These just aren't our scholars. These just aren't our scholars' parents. All of these people are our family. If hope gets shut down, our family gets shut down. Our school is- Please conclude your statement, please conclude. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Uh, good morning. 
My name is Dequisha Johnson. My son name is Christian Mayweather, who is in first grade at Hope. I am distraught and angry that Hope is being closed and ripped out from under my son. You are ripping apart relationships that were built between teachers and students who have uh, became a family. It is a disgrace, unjust, and wrong to our community that you all gave such short notice of closing after already having parents fill out for the next school year and pay our funds. My son was and still is excited to continue his education at Hope. It is not by choice that after praying for a better school for my son, God God pointed me in a direction of hope. After having been here for a year, my son has excelled so much from the classroom where Mr. Proshka teaches and the program Gas Hill. He has, he has had access to his teacher and principals who have been very hands-on with the students, not just education-wise, but to their safety. The principal walking the campus at drop-offs and pickups, ensuring safety of all their scholars. Since becoming a part of Hope Family, my son has become so confident, happy, disciplined, and is learning on a much higher level. He has maintained an honor roll uh, student because of the teachers here. We black and brown and special needs God created students are being pushed out. I am filled with so much sadness and anger and even trying to uh, keep my composure from crying. My daughter won't even be given the opportunity to witness the great teachers who care so much about their students' education and well-being, even after David departed. Please show some grace as if you will want grace in a situation like this. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm a teacher at Hope. I've been teaching there for nine years, and I'm asking you to um, absorb our school as a CPS school. The acceptance and inclusion that happen and are taught at this school every day is truly amazing. The care the staff give each individual student is nothing like I've never seen before. The camaraderie between the general education population and the diverse population is something special that should not be taken away. In my heart, displacing this school family is wrong. Thank you for having me. Hello, excuse me, I'm a little nervous. I'm used to talking to seven-year-olds all day. But uh, my name is Melissa and I have been a teacher at the Hope Learning Academy for 10 years. Hope was the place where I learned to be a teacher. I learned to have patience. I learned the importance of relationships. I learned the importance of treating colleagues, children, and families with respect. But it ended. The Hope, the charter operator, they have not treated their employees, their parents, or their students with respect. Hope, the charter operator, they're cowards. They have not been here to talk to our families. They refuse to engage with them through Zoom or in person. They've even canceled their next two board meetings. Hope the charter operator, they're cowards. At first, they tried to blame the closure on declining enrollment. But when proven wrong, they blamed it on you. They said, CPS, you're not a good partner. Because Hope the charter operator, they're cowards. They claim to be a nonprofit but then they blame the closure on financial reasons. And they said, you're not paying your bills, CPS. That's what they told us. Hope, the charter operator, they're cowards. They are afraid of the CTU. They are afraid to treat their employees with dignity and give us the compensation we deserve. Hope, the charter operator, they're cowards. Why is it that they're closing Speaker their only 25, school? You have 30 seconds remaining, please conclude. 
their only school with brown and black students and staff. Hope, the charter operator, they're cowards. They did not make Hope, Chicago, the special place it is. We did that. We did that in spite of them, in spite of the cowards. Thank you very much for your time. Our next speaker is Tammy Doyle, speaker number 28, who is here in person. Hi, my name is Tammy. Um, first off, I've never worked for a better place than Hope. I've been there almost five years, and I can't imagine anywhere else I'd rather be. Um, I have over 20 years experience, so that should tell you something. Secondly, Hope Learning Academy allows children to individually grow and learn. There's a good majority of our students that have special needs, and Hope helps by focusing on individualized goals and lessons with accommodations and adaptations for success. Additionally, the staff at Hope is beyond dedicated. We are a team of educators that care and want results because it's all about the kids. It's all about the kids. These children have a home at Hope. We strive to keep Hope families alive. We want our community to stay intact by merging with CPS in, a current, in our current site. The benefits outweigh the deficits. This allows our students and families to stay in an environment they are familiar and comfortable with. Hope's loss of CPS's gain. Thank you for your time. And remember, it's all about the kids. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. At the beginning of tonight's program, we heard about the 19th century-like working conditions that persist globally. Well, 19th century labor conditions also seem to be the goal of corporations right here at home. In particular, as surprising and shocking as it may sound, it appears that corporate America is determined to bring back child labor. Our friends at More Perfect Union, a terrific YouTube channel and fellow member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, they continue to produce some of the best labor journalism you'll find anywhere. They recently released a video on this topic about the erosion of child labor laws and the corporate entities behind these efforts, which is really the important story here. Their focus in particular in this segment was on our neighbors to the west in Iowa, which appears to be on the cutting edge of increased child exploitation. A quick note, as the following audio is from a More Perfect Union's video, there are some sound effects that might seem a tad out of place in this audio, but I promise it's worth a listen. Minute to do, uh, like, what is it on? Oh, I'm going to pass on that. That's Iowa State Senator Jason Schultz. He's the sponsor of the most dramatic rollback of child labor protections in the nation, even if he doesn't want to talk about it. Nothing no, about I'm going to pass on that. I'm just kind of stepping back on that one. I'm, I'm going to not get into any conversations. I'm going to stay away from that, although you might find out later why. Oh. <laughs> there you go. There's your tease. Senator Schultz is clearly proud of his work, but as our investigation will show you, he's just one part of a shadowy national effort funded by big corporations and PACs to roll back child labor laws that have been in place since the 1930s. More states are considering changes to child labor laws as they try to fill jobs. Maine and Michigan lowered the required age to serve alcohol. New Jersey raised the limit on the number of hours teens can work over the summer. In Minnesota, a new bill would allow 16 and 17 year olds to work construction jobs. In Iowa, proposed law would let 14 and 15 year olds work certain jobs in meat packing plants. The Iowa bill takes child labor law rollbacks to the next level. Think kids in ultra dangerous meat packing facilities, high volume 
buying Pepsi bottling plants and working for cheap on the searing hot ovens of fast food chains like McDonald's for 30 plus hours a week. No, for real. Iowa Republicans want to allow kids between the ages of 14 to 17 to work in incredibly dangerous, often deadly workplaces. Places like construction sites where more than 5,000 workers died last year. As it's set up now, there would be virtually no restrictions. The job would just have to be part of an education program, something that the company could invent itself. It's true that more than a third of teenagers across the US worked summer jobs in 2021, but serving ice cream isn't exactly the same as working in building demolition. So why would lawmakers put kids who are just finishing middle school into such dangerous situations? Here's what Rep Deo, the house sponsor of the bill says. Right now, kids can be out till 10 o'clock if they're out for a sport or a school activity. And so why, why are they not able to be able to work until, say, for example, 9 o'clock? An actual expert we spoke to firmly disagreed. It's a bizarre argument to argue that playing team sports is akin to working in a, you know, in a factory or some other dangerous environment. We, we like kids not to work more than 20 hours a week because that's, that's kind of a, a cutoff for, for damage that's done to them educationally. Okay, so why are lawmakers actually doing this? The bill was uh, really spearheaded by the Restaurant Association. Um, we sort of came along, we were asked to be, uh, we were invited to come along. That's Brad Epperly, a lobbyist who works for big corporate clients like the Iowa Grocery Industry Association. He's outright admitting to us that the Iowa Restaurant Association was the driving force behind this bill. They're an affiliate of the National Restaurant Association, a trade group that represents some of the biggest names in fast food, like Burger King and Taco Bell. They also lobby for big corporations like PepsiCo and Cisco. And from one look at their newsletter from this time last year, you can tell they've been hard at work spreading the gospel about the benefits of young labor. The hands-on internship at the slaughterhouse is their big priority this year, but we can't give them all the credit. This child labor law rollback originated at a meeting of the Iowa Workforce Development Board, which is overseen by Governor Kim Reynolds. Most of its members are corporate CEOs and lobbyists, and they meet up several times a year to come up with new policies. This bill was a product of a meeting in November. The WDB is chaired by Jay Iverson, executive officer of the Association of Iowa Builders, hence the emphasis on kids using bandsaws on work sites. Lobbyists from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry are well represented on the board, which gives member corporations like John Deere and Google seats at the table. And of course, no race to the bottom would be complete without the Koch-funded Americans for Prosperity and Opportunity Solutions Network also lobbying on the bill. Given their obvious enthusiasm, we tried to get some of these lobbyists to talk to us about the many benefits of child labor, but they were a bit shy to take credit for their work. The next part of the bill was clearly written for the Iowa Restaurant Association, Hotel and Lodging Association, and National Bureau of Independent Businesses, the state leaders in low-wage jobs. It would allow 14-year-olds to work in giant freezing meat lockers and raise their mandatory clock-out time from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m and then 11 p.m. in the summer. The research that has been done has found pretty clearly that 20 hours is kind of a cutoff, and when kids work more than that during the school week, their grades, the grades start to plummet, and their school completion rate starts to plummet. Many businesses like retail, restaurants, and fast food joints love to hire kids because they'll take a lower paycheck. If they can stay at work even longer, places like McDonald's, which loves hiring kids, don't even need to worry about hiring adults who can fill those jobs, let alone paying them living wages. Children's brains are not fully developed, especially that part of the brain that exercises caution, that tell, you know, tells a person that, oh, this is dangerous, I might get hurt. 
that part of the brain is just not quite there yet and it doesn't really fully develop until the early or, or mid-20s. The bill would also let 16 and 17-year-olds handle alcohol on the job, which effectively puts them in pubs and bars with intoxicated adults. Consider these all big wins for BlackRock, Vanguard, Wellington, J.P. Morgan, Fidelity. Those Wall Street titans naturally own big stakes in the multinational food distribution powerhouses Cisco and Performance Food Service, two of the top donors to the Iowa Restaurant Association truly the voice of small business. But there's one company that benefits more over any other. Hy-Vee, where there's a helpful smile in every aisle. Hy-Vee is one of the biggest employers in Iowa and one of its most prolific violators of child labor law. Every few years, a new report seems to come out about all the miners unlawfully working for them. Since 2000, Hy-Vee has been fined over $700,000 for more than 30 labor law violations, including a big fine last year for safety violations. But as much as they forked over to OSHA, Hy-Vee has been even more generous to Kim Reynolds and Iowa Republicans, shelling out over $815,000 over the last decade alone. Reynolds even kicked off her 2018 campaign for governor at a Hy-Vee and appeared on their bespoke talk show. Hy-Vee is a great example of a phenomenal Absolutely. employer. They're one of our largest employers in the state of, of Iowa. They're in small communities all across this great state and one of the major employers in these small communities. So uh, very, very grateful to that helpful smile in every aisle. Yeah. <laughs> it's unclear how many kids were working there at the time, but Hy-Vee is just one of many corporations that are now regularly being caught violating child labor. For a bill pitched as a cure for so-called worker shortages in Iowa, where the minimum wage is still $7.25, and so many other states, the reality is damning. You've seen the headlines, including the huge recent expose in the New York Times about the proliferation of child labor. Since the pandemic began, violations have exploded and were up by 37% last year. Packer Sanitation Services, Hyundai Kia in Alabama, Blackstone-owned PSSI, a sanitation company with systemic violations. Instead of cracking down, states are lining up to legalize the practices, 10 over the past two years alone. It's much the same story in Arkansas, Ohio, and Wisconsin. Big donations by big corporations are leading to laws that put kids at risk in order to save a few bucks. The intention is written in plain English. The original version of the Iowa bill called for total corporate immunity if a kid got injured at a dangerous workplace. Lawmakers were forced to scrub that last part, but employers will still avoid liability if a kid gets into an accident while driving home after working late into the night. Exploit a kid's cheap labor then send them packing, and no responsibility when there are consequences. It should go without saying, but such a textbook example of corporate greed and corruption shouldn't qualify as educational experience. You can see the More Perfect Union video that was the source of that audio up at a link at laborexpress.org. That's laborexpress.org. Well, it's all for tonight's episode. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBW Local 1220. The expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Song written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. And once again, happy May Day. Yeah, this one's
Centuries don't pass for no more than your brain. 